Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity and New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Pyongho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. Cambodian Evangelicalism, Cosmological Hope and Diasporic Resilience, written by Brianna Wong and published by Penn State University Press in 2023 explores the compelling stories of Cambodian evangelicals, their process of conversion, and how their testimonials to the Christian faith help them to make sense of and find purpose in their trauma from the Cambodian civil war and genocide of the late 1960s and 70s. Based on ethnographic fieldwork with Cambodian communities in the metropolitan areas of Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Paris, and Nom Penh, Dr. Wong examines questions of religious identity and the search for meaning within the context of transnational Cambodian evangelicalism. While the community has grown in recent decades, Christians nevertheless make up a small minority of the predominantly Buddhist diaspora. Dr. Wong explores what it is about Christianity that makes these converts willing to risk their social standing familial bonds, and in certain cases, physical safety in order to identify with the faith. Furthermore, this monograph contributes to ongoing dialogues on conversion, reverse mission, and multiple religious belonging. During our interview today, we will delve deeper into Dr. Wong's significant work and how this book sets out to make a significant contribution to not only scholars and students of world Christianity, but also missiology and the history of Christianity, as well as Southeast Asian studies, secular sociologies, and anthropologists operating within the field of religious studies. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. Today we are privileged to talk with Dr. Brianna Wong, the author of Cambodian Evangelicalism, Cosmological Hope and Diasporic Resilience. Brianna Wong is the Assistant Professor of the History of World Christianities at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Her research interests include the history and anthropology of Christianity in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Within the field of world Christianity, she has written on multiple religious belonging, response to the COVID-19 crisis within the transnational Cambodian evangelical community, and the ordination of women. And to highlight some of Dr. Wong's uh, publication, she has written uh, Buddhist Christians in Cambodian America, published in the Studies in World Christianity Journal in 2019. The historical interface between Buddhism and Christianity in Cambodia with special attention to the Christianity and Missionary Alliance, 1923 to 1970, published in the Journal of Buddhist Christian Studies in 2020. And Longing for Home, the Impact of COVID-19 on Cambodian Evangelical Life, published in the Studies in World Christianity Journal in 2020. Prior to starting her position at Phillips Seminary, she was Louisville Institute's postdoctoral fellow and held the position of visiting assistant professor of world Christianity at Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Dr. Wong also currently serves as a co-chair of the World Christianity Unit in the American Academy of Religion. As a theological educator, Dr. Wong is committed to developing and walking alongside future ministers as they explore and live into their callings. So welcome, Dr. Wong, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Thank you, Byung-ho. It's good to be here today. Thank you. Um, to start, 
Dr. Wong, I'd like to extend my congratulations on the publications of this wonderful work. I understand that the book has recently been released, granting our audience immediate access uh, to your book. Is this your first single authored monograph? Thank you so much, Byung-ho. Yes, it is my first. And honestly, I didn't do it by myself. I'm just really grateful to all my interlocutors, teachers, family, friends, and everyone else who helped to make this book a reality. Yes. Uh, once again, my sincere congratulations on this first uh, single author monograph. Um, prior to delving into your book, though, I believe it will be very beneficial for our listeners to begin today's discussion by getting to know you better. Um, so, Dr. Wong, do you mind saying a few words about your background, where you grew up, where you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your field of study? And here, please don't hesitate to acknowledge those who have played a role in influencing your academic journey. Yeah, um, thanks for asking. So. I'm biracial. My mom is Black and my dad is Chinese-American. Um, I was born in Sonoma County, California, wine country, and, and spent most of my childhood in Berkeley and Oakland near San Francisco. Um, I spent most of my high school years in Montreal, Canada, and then finished up high school in the Seattle, Washington area. So a lot of coast-to-coast -coast action there. Um, did my undergrad at Columbia in New York and then came to Princeton Seminary for my MDiv and ended up staying for my PhD in the newly minted World Christianity and History of Religions program. Uh, when I came in, it was actually still called Mission Ecumenic and History of Religions. Um, and in that World Christianity program at PPS, I had the privilege of studying with Richard Fox Young, Afe Aragame, and Jaimundo Bajeto. Um, they've all been tremendously influential in my formation as a researcher, as a writer, and as a teacher. And I owe them all so much. Uh, they've opened so many doors for me. And I'm sure, you know, those that I know about and those that I don't. Um, and I thank God for them. Um, as to how I became interested in my field of study, there are I guess, a bunch of different angles that I could use to answer this question. I guess it depends on where you start. But um, long story short, um, I already felt like I was called to teach. Um, and I was hoping that I could teach history in a seminary with history major in undergrad. Um, and I just felt this kind of, um, yeah, invitation to remember Asia. Um, and I had grown up hearing stories from Cambodian Christians here and there when I was growing up in California, stories from family friends. Um, and I knew that these were important stories. Um, and as I continued in my own education, I realized that not a lot of people in the United States knew this history. Um, so I felt like it could be an important opportunity to highlight the diversity of the history of Christianity um, and of the global community of Christians. And I, I didn't know all of what kind of stories I would actually hear out in the field, but I just feel so grateful that people were willing to share their stories with me. Well, thank you for this opportunity to get to know you better. And uh, one thing Thanks. I enjoyed, uh, yes, uh, and one thing I enjoyed in doing these podcast interviews is that it offers our listeners and future readers a wonderful opportunity to explore the discussions that you know extend beyond the boundaries uh, of the book and at this time i would like to kind of invite you to tell us more about how you came to write your book you know cambodian evangelicalism how did this project begin and what led you to writing this monograph yeah good question basically this book emerged out of the research that i carried out with Cambodian evangelical communities while I was finishing up my PhD at Princeton Seminary. It's uh, primarily based on a multi-sided ethnographic fieldwork journey that took me from Philadelphia to Long Beach, California, to Paris, to Phnom Penh. Well, thank you for uh, taking us through that and um, for sharing uh, your journey um, in writing this book. For our listeners who have not yet had the chance to look at the contents of the book, I wanted to take a brief moment to walk you through its contents. There are a total of five chapters, plus an introduction and a conclusion. It includes an extensive bibliography on not only the Cambodian genocide, but also on various scholarly works regarding Cambodia's religious and sociopolitical dynamics providing an important resource for those who wish to you know, dig deeper into such issues. 
And before I move on to my question regarding the introduction, I would like to spotlight one key aspect, uh, which is the 10-page epilogue at the end of the book. Um, through this uh, last chapter, I was able to begin again a closer insight on how the author personally, you know, situated herself in her research, both as a researcher and as a person. The author delineates her ethnographic journey and explains the multi layers of complexities relating to gender religious background and identity, you know, that she had to juggle with in her own work. I'm not sure if Dr. Wang would approve, but personally, I found it quite helpful to read the epilogue first before diving into the chapters. Um, now, it is in the introduction of your book, Dr. Wang, that you explain to the readers regarding what you seek to examine in your work, and that is stories or, quote, testimonies that reveal the ways in which Cambodian converts to evangelical Christianity have drawn on their newfound faith to make sense of their traumatic collective past in the wake of the Cambodian genocide, end quote. Regarding methodological approach, your research heavily relies on the use of ethnography, you know, visiting multiple sites, doing participant observations and fieldwork by con conducting multiple, you know, interviews. And my question to you is, you know, why did you choose to use ethnography in doing this work? And what were some of your limitations? And if I may quickly squeeze one more question here, do you mind also touching upon how your work led to you know, going beyond just Cambodia, but also including Pennsylvania, California, and even, you know, France. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll take these one at a time. And I just want to comment first on the idea of, um, of starting at the end. Um, I totally approve um, of reading the epilogue first before diving into the chapters, if that's helpful for people. I had a fantastic professor in undergrad who, um, was giving advice to me as a young history major. And she was saying, you know, a lot of these books, you can read the introduction and the conclusion very carefully. And then you can read the introduction and conclusion of every chapter and then read the middle parts real fast, you know, <laughs> looking for what, what helps you. So if that is, uh, if that is helpful for readers, students or otherwise, please feel free to do what is most useful for you in understanding the book. Um, and getting the, the main points. Uh, with respect to ethnography, uh, you know, Byung-ho, for anyone who knows me, ethnography might seem like a surprising choice. I'm very much an introvert. Um, and as someone with a history background, I love being in archives on my own, looking through old documents. But I, I really decided to do ethnography because I wanted to learn about Cambodian Christianity from actual Cambodian Christians um, and not just you know, what other people had written about them. Um, I wanted to learn their language as best I could, go to where they lived um, and hear their stories directly from them. Richard Young, my dissertation advisor, uh, was helpful in encouraging me in this direction and, and showing me how it could be possible. Um, I also want to add a thank you here to Janice McLean Farrell, whose book, West Indian Pentecostals Living Their Faith in New York and London, includes a postscript in which she unpacks her ethnographic experience, reflecting on the ways in which she felt like an insider, an outsider, or both at different points and at different places. And her postscript really inspired me to carry out a similar kind of reflection in my own work. Um, so I owe that to her. Um, I think it's helpful for people to know who you are and where you're coming from, if they're going to understand why you gravitated towards certain observations or points of analysis, because we're all different. Um, and we all have different stories. Um, with respect to limitations, there are a bunch. <laughs> but just to respect your time and the time of our listeners, I'll just limit it to two, limit my limitations to two. Um, one is language. So just being very honest, my interlocutors were tremendously patient with me. Um, but even now, I speak in very halting Khmer. Um, and I, I feel like the people that I came into contact with were almost always people who spoke fluent English or French, or who were close with someone who did. Um, and I felt like that narrowed the field a bit. I was grateful for everyone who was willing to introduce me to a friend or a friend of a friend. Um, 
but I know that if I had come in with stronger language skills at the beginning, I would have been able to um, have access to an even wider uh, group of people. Um, another is, um, another limitation is age. So in preparing for this book, I only interviewed adults, people over 18. And if I had that to do over again, it's something I'd do very differently. Um, I was grateful for the stories of everyone who was willing to speak with me. Um, but I, I know that Cambodia is a country with a very vibrant youth population. And one of the things that really stood out to me about the churches I visited in Cambodia itself was not only how many teenagers and young adults were in every service, but also how often, you know, oftentimes they were taking initiative to hold leadership roles in various forms of ministry and um, just so passionate, creative, dynamic, filled with purpose. I wish that I'd had the opportunity to highlight more what the young people were doing. So hopefully I'll, I'll be back at some point and I'll be able to do that. Um, um, also, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, Brenko, go ahead. No, please. Um, uh, I think you wanted to mention how, you know, your work led to uh, other parts of the region other than outside of Cambodia. That's right. Sorry, I didn't mean to forget that second part of your question. Um, yeah, I mean, evangelical Christianity among ethnic Cambodian people is present not only in Cambodia itself, but also quite significantly in its diaspora. Um, I had some friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends, et cetera, who were able to connect me with various individuals and communities around the world. And I thought it would be ideal to get a diverse picture of how evangelicalism looks within this transnational Cambodian community. Um, as to these four specific places, I mean, Philadelphia was an easy choice because it's not far from Princeton, where I was studying at the time. Uh, Long Beach, California has the largest Cambodian population outside of Southeast Asia. Um, so that seemed like a natural destination as well. And since my grandmother was living in Compton, just about 15 minutes, 20 minutes outside of Long Beach, I was able to stay with her um, and drive the short commute into Long Beach several days a week for field work. Um, actually, she and my mom and my sister sometimes um, would accompany me um, to, you know, services at various churches and other events with my interlocutors, which ended up being so much fun for all of us as a family and for my interlocutors to get to know all of us together. Um, Cambodians have a longer history in France, um, largely, unfortunately, because of the colonial past. You know, it's Cambodia was a French protectorate, um, but I thought it would be interesting to spend some time in France and interacting with Cambodian Christians with various types of experiences and histories. And then, of course, you know, I had to be in Cambodia itself. Um, Phnom Penh um, is the capital city. I had been there before and had some friends who were um, who were based there. It seemed like as I was doing my field work in the diaspora, everybody had, um, almost everybody had friends or family in Phnom Penh. And so it kind of snowballed. Like, oh, take my friend's phone number. Take my friend's email address. They'll meet you you know, in, in Phnom Penh. So it ended up being good for me, I think, to save Phnom Penh for last. Wow. Uh, thank you so much for walking us through uh, some of uh, the things that you've um, went through, through your uh, ethnographic work and how you've managed to travel around the world uh, in, in doing this wonderful uh, research. Now, segueing into the first chapter, uh, we want, we are provided with a brief historical overview of Christianity mm -hmm. in Cambodia um, since Christianity's arrival in the 16th century to its growth. And that was also, you know, oftentimes entangled with Cambodia's colonial history. Uh, while the history of Christianity in Cambodia may not seem exhaustive um, in, in this first chapter, we are still able to see a bird's eye view view of how it fits into the larger historical context and examine how both Protestant and Catholic missionaries also played a significant role up to the mid-20th century. But what grabbed my attention, uh, Dr. Wang, and what I think needs to be mentioned now before we continue our interview today is, you know, understanding some of the complexities of the Cambodian genocide. So, Dr. Wang, for our listeners who are still new to the context of Cambodia, do you mind speaking on the genocide that took place during 1975 to 1979? And what was going on within the Cambodian Christian community during this controversial period? Yeah, thank you for asking, Byung-Ho. Um, no, I don't mind. I, um, 
I mentioned earlier before the the interview, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the genocide because I think that sometimes this is all people in the West think of when they think of Cambodia and there's so much more. Um, no one wants to be reduced to the most tragic, most horrific moment in their history. Um, but even so, it does warrant um, a brief explanation as the gen genocide has affected everyone in Cambodia and in the diaspora um, directly or indirectly. And this was the cause, um, of course, of the refugee camp period during which many of my interlocutors ended up um, converting to Christianity. So um, in brief, you know, Cambodia had been going through a civil war from 1970 to 1975. And the rebel group, commonly known as the Khmer Rouge, under its leader Pol Pot, ended up winning the war and instituting a totalitarian government that tried to eliminate everyone who stood in its way. Um, anyone who was considered to be educated, to speak another language, be under any kind of foreign influence was at risk of execution. Um, the idea was to create an agrarian society that would restore Cambodia to this mythic past um, that never really existed in the way that the Khmer Rouge said it did. Um, but they moved everyone in the cities out to the countryside, forced them into work groups to farm the land and carry out other tasks, and oppressed them in pretty much every conceivable way. There are a lot of books about this, and I, I talk about it a bit in my book too, so I don't want to go into all the details here. But suffice it to say, it was a terrible time in history, and many people um, died as a result. The Cambodian Genocide Program at Yale estimates that about 1.7 million people died as a result. Um, the Khmer Rouge took over every aspect of people's lives, including you know, where they could live, whom they could marry, what they could eat, uh, and how they had to spend their time. People were forced to do a lot of things that they wouldn't have chosen to do on their own. And there's a lot of pain that people still carry uh, regarding this time. Um, the reason I include this history in the book is not because I had any interview questions about the Khmer Rouge. In fact, none of my questions um, were about the war or the genocide in my, you know, in my survey. Um, and this was on purpose. But when my interlocutors talked with me about how they had decided to convert to Christianity, many of the stories they shared of their own accord included anecdotes about how they had survived the genocide and the horrors that they had endured during that time. In many cases, they spent time in refugee camps where some Western missionaries, but mostly Cambodian Christians, were active in establishing large church communities that ended up growing and offering people a sense of hope in the midst of their suffering and loss. I remember one of the very first um, Cambodian pastors that I interviewed um, brought this up with me and talked about how there was a, a large church in the in the camp that he had um, been in as a refugee and how the church building was so packed that people had to kind of spiral around the building and listen to the sermon on loudspeakers because there was not enough room inside. Um, so people were often looking um, for hope, looking for something different. Um, and many of them, um, my interlocutors among them ended up finding this through Christianity. Yes. A quick follow-up question, uh, Dr. Wang, and an important one that we need to clarify at this point mm -hmm. as well, is your understanding and the use of the term evangelicalism or evangelical in referring to the Cambodian Christians you talk about. Dr. Wang, do you mind um, unpacking that word evangelical that you employ throughout your work and I ask this question because this term has indeed become a loaded and contentious one in recent decades, and I think it'll be very beneficial to know how you utilize this term throughout your work. Yeah, thank you for asking, Byung-ho. That is an important question. It's a hard question, um, and one with which I've wrestled a lot um, in both, both my personal and professional kind of worlds. Um, it's a word with which I, I have a very difficult relationship. I think um, that's been the case most of my adult life. Um, I think as a younger person, I felt more comfortable using this word, um, kind of indexing something like a commitment to loving God and loving people, uh, to being surrendered to Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus. Um, and these days, um, I, 
I find it to be of limited utility much of the time because of all the explaining that often has to happen about what I don't mean by it, um, which can often take longer than it would to just use other words. <laughs> but I think in this context, it was important to use it for a number of reasons. So um, in, the, in the earliest version of what would become this manuscript, there was no mention of evangelicalism in the title. I had opted for the broader um, Christianity. Um, but I received some helpful advice from a couple of mentors in the field that I needed to be more specific because I truly wasn't writing about all of Cambodian Christianity. Um, I thought about it. You know, I I'd even visited a couple Catholic services during my field work. But again, um, I received some very wise advice about how it would be too unwieldy to try to, to try to write about Catholicism, evangelicalism, and other expressions of Cambodian Christianity all in one book. Um, part of that is because Catholics and Protestants in Cambodia um, have often had opposite experiences from one another at different times in history, depending on what was going on in the country politically. Both Catholics and Protestants um, suffered under the Khmer Rouge, but at different, um, different points in history, um, one group sometimes found itself in trouble while the other was flourishing and the other way around. So I decided that, yes, I needed to focus. Um, and since most of my connections were in the evangelical Protestant communities, I decided to focus there. Um, now I'm aware that I, I still haven't answered your question about the definition. Um, in this book, I, I depend a great deal on a definition of evangelicalism that's pretty widespread or has been pretty widespread, although I acknowledge that um, it's not completely comprehensive um, or accurate in every uh, sense. But um, for the sake of simplicity, I, I used what's called the Bebbington Quadrilateral based on the work of David Bebbington, um, a British historian who um, said that evangelicals essentially have four main things in common. The first is biblicism, that is an emphasis on the Bible. The second is crucicentrism, an emphasis on the cross and the atonement of Christ. The third is conversionism, essentially the idea that conversion is important. And fourth, um, activism, which means in this sense that uh, Christians should express the gospel through their effort. Um, of course, these concepts play out differently in different cultural settings, which is to be expected, I think. Um, but I did find that my interlocutors almost always expressed the kind of Christianity that mirrored these theological priorities and would fall squarely as um, kind of fall squarely into the category of Bebbington evangelicals. Um, and many of them, if not all of them, actively used this term to describe themselves. Um, and I feel like it's important to call people what they call themselves. Um, now, I, I want to add that I understand and acknowledge in the book that evangelicalism is not only a theological category anymore. Some have said that it is not primarily a theological category at this point, but rather a social and a political one. So I, um, I acknowledge this conversation in the book as well, um, engaging the work of authors like Kristen DeMay, who uh, wrote Jesus and John Wayne, which explains the backstory of cultural evangelicalism in the U.S. and how it's become intertwined with a distinct political identity and even certain consumer habits much of the time. So I, I do get into that conversation as well. Thanks, Bianca. Thank you, Dr. Wong. And I think this will be very helpful for our future readers um, in understanding and going through your book because it, it provides a firm foundation to what you mean by evangelicals but not only that um, what also uh, Cambodians went through uh, the trauma uh, during um, that 60s and late 70s period so uh, keep in mind uh, our listeners please as we go along on this journey of this podcast together um, as you know this these terms will play a big role throughout our conversation now, Dr. Wong, I found the following chapter titled Conversion um, to be very interesting and one that helped me expand my own understanding of the concept of conversion. Here in this chapter, you focus on the narratives, the intimate stories of Cambodian Christians on why and how they converted from Buddhism to Christianity, which also helps us to have a better understanding to the growth of Christianity in Cambodia. 
through the excerpts you provide um, from your interviews with various Cambodian Christians, readers will discover the stories of religious transformation. And as you so rightfully analyze, their conversion narratives can be examined through the lens of multi-step conversion in which one might I, you know, identify with Christianity due to uh, practical necessities and only later closely engage with its you know, religious doctrines intellectually. And I must say, these personal stories are oftentimes intertwined with difficult experiences, you know, such as um, through what they've experienced in those refugee camps or the violence that their family endured or even death. And as difficult as it must have been in conducting these interviews, I am sure that combing through and analyzing all the data was probably just as or even twice as difficult. Um, but what caught my attention and the issue that I hope you can speak more about in regards to these conversion narratives is on the notion of divine intervention, the, the quote, visible manifestations of the Christian God, end quote, that came up in the people's stories. Dr. Wong, do you mind speaking more on what you discovered in their stories, on their experiences with God, and how they've placed meaning uh, into these experiences? Absolutely. Yeah, Bianco, these were some of the things that I was thinking about when I, I talked about how I had no idea what I was going to encounter when I went out into the field. Um, this was, this came as a surprise to me. Uh, so shortly, you know, after I got to Long Beach, California, um, I met with a, a man who worked with a local Cambodian organization who um, said that a pretty common story for many of the people that he worked with was that survivors of the Cambodian genocide would, you know, be relocated to these camps. And then in his words, a guy would show up. And sure enough, in my own interviews and participant observation, just, you know, living life with members of the community, several of my interlocutors shared memories of encounters with figures they believed to have been the Christian God, live and in person. Often these figures were wearing white clothing, um, and they you know, arrived only briefly to share life-saving information or to offer comfort in, in a time of need. Um, in one instance, a woman came up to me, my mom, my grandmother, my sister after a church service and just started sharing a story along these lines. It wasn't an official interview. I hadn't asked her a question. <laughs> she knew why I was at the church and she wanted to make sure that we all heard her story. And my family still talks about that as a really significant moment something that we had the privilege of hearing together um, from this woman who you know, felt comfortable to share her story with us. Um, and I, I know it was only uh, oftentimes after having talked with other Cambodian Christians in the camps and perhaps afterwards, that some people who had these experiences started to interpret them through a Christian lens. Um, and often it was very influential um, for them in um pushing back against survivor's guilt. Uh, you know, why, why did I survive when so many of my friends and family members didn't? Um, for people who have these memories um, of, you know, God uh, intervening in a direct way uh, as they're interpreting it, uh, it adds to their testimony, this aspect of being rescued for a purpose. Um, and, contributes to a sense of mission and hope that affects every aspect of how they live out their faith, of how they carry out their ministry, um, of how they make their priorities in life. Um, and so I, I really appreciate having that opportunity to hear these stories from my interlocutors. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed is that hope was quite a major theme um, yeah. in in their narratives as well, in their stories. So I really appreciated that and learning more about how, you know, people, various uh, people understood their own uh, conversion process and their conversion journey as well into Christianity. So thank you for highlighting that, Dr. Wong. Absolutely. Um, Segwaying into the third chapter now, I found this chapter to be one of my favorites, as I not only found it relatable to my own work on Christianity in Indonesia, mm -hmm. but the issue that you focus on is somewhat of a reoccurring phenomenon and theme 
um, that we uncover in the field of world Christianity. You know, when we study about Christianity in diverse contexts, right? And when I say these things, I'm referring to the notion that even though Christianity may primarily associate um, themselves with their new religious community, so within their Christian community, they still maintain a belief system influenced by a cosmology that includes, you know, essential elements from their former religion or religions. And Dr. Wang, it is in this very chapter you unravel the complex Cambodian evangelical cosmology that, quote, combines the overlapping influences of Protestant Christianity in the vein of the Keswick movement, Theravada and Mahayana forms of Buddhism, Mm -hmm. early forms of Hinduism, and Khmer and Chinese indigenous religious traditions, end quote. And through your ethnographic research, I think you make a strong case for this notion of, quote, multiple religious believing without multiple religious belonging. Let me say this one more time. Multiple religious believing without multiple religious belonging. And I was wondering, Dr. Wong, if you could tell us more about this in the context of Cambodian evangelicals, you know, that you've encountered. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, thank you for asking about this, Byung-ho. Um, yeah. So Cambodia is a uh, primarily Theravada Buddhist country. Um, and almost everybody in Cambodia, uh, with some exceptions, grew up surrounded by Theravada Buddhism. Um, and the form of Theravada that's practiced in Cambodia is, yeah, like you said, influenced by all kinds of other religious expressions, including, of course, Khmer indigenous religions, but then also, you know, Chinese indigenous religions. Cambodia has a significant Chinese population that's been there for many generations. Um, Before Cambodia was officially Buddhist, um, it was actually Hindu. So um, some of you probably already know, listening to this podcast, that um, Angkor Wat, the famous, uh, beautiful temple in Siem Reap um, is now Buddhist, but it was originally a Hindu temple. And there was this um, the statue of um, Vishnu, which was um, later uh, kind of adapted so that it, it represented uh, the Buddha. But um, yeah, so there's this, there's this Hindu heritage. Um, and then when Cambodia um, did kind of transition in a more Buddhist direction, the first form of Buddhism that entered Cambodia was Mahayana. So the the form of Buddhism that is practiced primarily in East Asia, China, Korea, um, Japan, um, and even um, even Vietnam. Vietnam is in Southeast Asia, but has uh, a significant Mahayana population. And then Theravada is the form that is um, practiced most often in the rest of Southeast Asia, as well as in Sri Lanka. Um, so there are many different religious uh, traditions that are interweaving and layered on top of one another that inform the practice of um, different types of Cambodian religion, including Cambodian Christianity. Um, and the reason why I, <laughs> I put together this phrase, multiple religious believing without multiple religious belonging, I know it's a mouthful. I, I do that to honor the, um, the strength of my interlocutor's commitment to Christianity. Um, so I'm I'm combining two phrases there, uh, multiple religious belonging, which is this idea that's been talked about a lot in religious studies and in world Christianity of, um, of belonging to two distinct religious traditions at the same time. So for example, uh, you know, identifying as Buddhist and as Christian at the same time. Um, and then on the other hand, this idea of believing without belonging, that's a phrase I'm borrowing from, um, from Grace Davey. Um, and so in this case, I'm talking about, when I, when I say multiple religious believing without multiple religious belonging, I'm talking about um, people who identify exclusively with one religion, um, even though their cosmology, their understanding of the world and who inhabits excuse me, and who inhabits it and how different um, spiritual entities interact with humans and with one another are informed uh, by other religious traditions. Um, So among my interlocutors, most people were very insistent 
on being only Christian um, and not Buddhist. And in many cases, they actually made great sacrifices socially, financially, and otherwise to convert to Christianity. Um, and so I, I thought it would be appropriate to emphasize that rather than just um, putting them in the category of multiple religious belonging um, when that didn't seem to really fit their own self-understanding. Um, now, sometimes the, the stories that they shared with me reflected um, understandings of the world that were influenced by Buddhism and or by Hinduism. Um, for example, some of these um, some of these anecdotes that people shared about, you know, memories of encountering uh, figures they believed to have been the Christian God live and in person. Sometimes there were aspects of those stories that kind of seemed to be rooted in um, in other religious traditions. Um, one that I remember has to do with, or actually there were a couple where um, some of my interlocutors called out to um, deities that were associated with um, Hindu gods or um, Hindu gods that have been sort of adopted into the Cambodian practice of Buddhism. And then in their understanding, it was the Christian God who um, answered that call. And so I think there's kind of this very interesting interplay between and among these different religious traditions in the practice of Cambodian Christianity. Um, and what it really came down to for most of them was uh, this question of loyalty. Um, you know, whatever, um, whatever the different aspects of religion you're dealing with, whether you're um, talking about karma and merit building or the specific spiritual beings that inhabit the world alongside humans, are you loyal to Christ? or are you not? Wow, thank you for that answer. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that word at the end of your answer, uh, loyalty, because uh, in the penultimate chapter, your description of Cambodian evangelicals emphasize emphasis on spirituality of loyalty is indeed quite noteworthy. And I think we should discuss it a little bit more. You mentioned that in the Cambodian evangelical context, you know, quote, individuals often make decisions about how to interact with various spiritual beings based on the concept of loyalty to the Christian God, and that their relationship with God was bounded by an ex expectation of exclusive loyalty to God, you know, end quote. This uh, exclusive loyalty to God... <laughs> The term loyalty also does not come easy, but that term uh, exclusive loyalty to God, you know, uh, puts a lot of meaning to their relationship, uh, to their understanding of their relationship with the Christian God. And I was wondering, Dr. Wong, if you can explain further about this concept of loyalty um, for the Cambodian evangelicals and how it impacts their understanding and their relationship, you know, with their Christian God. And what were you able to discover um, in their uh, uh, in the people's stories? Yeah, this is an important question. And not everybody was in agreement about what loyalty looked like. So all of my interlocutors agreed that loyalty was essential. Um, different ones of them had different ideas of what constituted loyalty, what loyalty required. Um, a lot of questions that came up frequently were, you know, like, can you, can you go to a Buddhist temple uh, ever? You know, what if your brothers are monks? Can you go visit them there? What if um, one of your parents has died? Are you able to go to the funeral? Um, what about venerating your ancestors years after they've died? Um, are these activities in which Christians can participate in good conscience? Um, and there were different answers to that um, within the communities that I visited. I, I want it to be very clear that Cambodian Christianity, even Cambodian evangelicalism is not this uh, monolithic entity. There are different opinions, different convictions um, within the same transnational community, even within the same congregation or the same family. Um, sometimes there were differences that I noticed um, depending on age, clergy or lay status, uh, or even geographical location. Um, I felt like, uh, especially in the diaspora, older people um, people my grandmother's age and older often um, had a stricter interpretation of what was required in that sense. 
um, whereas middle-aged and younger individuals um, often uh, felt comfortable with a little bit more nuance. Um, I think geographical location also plays into this. There seems to be a stricter interpretation across the board in the diaspora, uh, maybe because in Cambodia, people are still living in a society in which they are surrounded uh, by Buddhism. Um, and it's not as easy there to extricate yourself entirely from all Buddhist related activity, even if you wanted to. Um, so it's a, a complex um, conversation that is ongoing and that um, changes depending on where you are and with whom you're speaking. Um, and I think that this is not something that is peculiar to Cambodian Christianity. I think we see it all over the world in contexts where people are converting to Christianity for the first time and then how that conversation develops over time and across generations. Yeah, thank you for the question. No, thank you for that deeper insight into understanding um, this uh, special relationship that um, some of these Cambodian Christians have uh, with their Christian God. Now, the final chapter of your book highlights the work of Cambodian evangelicals through transnational ministry and mission. And I know your work has gone beyond the borders of just Cambodia and into um, the regions of California and also even France. Um, and I'm sure your work has led to uh, discovering what we what we will be talking about right now. And what I was surprised to find was how incredibly active, you know, Cambodian evangelicals were in not only participating uh, mission oriented activities in Cambodia, but also in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, that includes the United States as well. It was fascinating to read about the mutual impacts, this multi-directional flow of mission in the Cambodian evangelical community. And while there are many discussion points in this chapter, I think that this chapter itself could be a dissertation in itself. Oh but I, but I, what I found exceptional, in which I hope we can further discuss, is the Cambodian evangelicals' use of digital media um, in conducting transnational ministry and the role of Cambodian women in the midst of this. Um, Dr. Wong, could you elaborate for us on some of the ways in which transnational Cambodian evangelicalism has been impacted through digital media? And what kind of opportunities have these digital platforms provided uh, for Cambodian women? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that the, the use of digital media has um, accentuated the transnational quality of Cambodian evangelical life and ministry. Um, so even before digital media was really a thing, um, Cambodian Christians often would save their money and travel um, to different points um, in, the, in the diaspora or in Cambodia to encourage each other to um, develop young Christians in their faith. Um, but of course, it's very expensive and people can't afford to do it all the time. Um, and, you know, the the rise of um, platforms like Facebook and um, even, you know, using at, at the time when I was doing uh, doing this research, it was Skype um, or Google Hangouts, different types of video conferencing that would allow people to um, preach or lead Bible studies um, across um, across the Pacific or you know across a continent. Um, across the Atlantic. Um, it allowed opportunities for people to um, engage in Christian community, even when they didn't live in the same place and might not have the opportunity to see each other in person for a very long time. Um, I think there's something in particular um, about the digital media situation that has been empowering for Christian women in the Cambodian context. Um, in my Field work, I encountered some churches that um, opened up opportunities for women to preach and to be ordained, uh, but then there were others that were um, not providing those same opportunities. And so having the opportunity to um, read the Bible um, in front of a camera, interpret it, uh, lead hymn sings out of the Cambodian hymnal and offer encouragement over the internet um, on a video call or on a streaming platform like Facebook Live allowed women to essentially 
make pulpits out of their kitchen tables, um, letting their interpretations of what it meant to be a Christian um, kind of spread from where they were living all the way uh, around the Cambodian community um, in Cambodia itself, as well as in the U.S. and France and elsewhere. Uh, Those uh, limitations that might have existed within their own congregation just weren't there in the same way online. Well, thank you, Dr. Wong, for that detailed answer. And just for our listeners to know, I think this uh, this last chapter, chapter five, is also where you talk about reverse mission uh, in terms of uh, your work. So for those that are interested in missiology or even uh, this issues of reverse mission, I think mm-hmm. we can refer back to uh, chapter five as well. Absolutely. Um, so Dr. Wong, as we approach the conclusion of our interview, Um, There are two questions I would like to ask, and that is first, what do you hope uh, students and scholars working on world Christianity uh, will take from your book? And second, could you shed light on the new avenues for research that your book might unveil? Yeah, my hope with this book um, is really to highlight the stories of a community whose experiences and perspectives um, often have been overlooked in traditional church history texts. Um, I love world Christianity as a field because of its endeavor to remember everyone. Um, and as a Christian myself, I really do believe that we need all members of the body of Christ. Um, I want to do my part in calling attention to that. Um, none of us sees the whole picture, and I think it's an important um, it's an important thing to keep an open mind and be ready to learn from people who come from different backgrounds and have different experiences. Um, I also hope that this book will open up opportunities for students and scholars who are interested in taking this research further. I've already had the chance to speak with uh, several up and coming Cambodian Christianity scholars and um, they've got exciting research topics and methodologies. And I hope that my book will be helpful to them in their own work, even as they push and move beyond it. Thank you, Dr. Wang. Uh, To wrap up this interview, there is one final question I would like to ask uh, all my guests on this podcast, and that is, could you kindly share with us your ongoing projects and your aspirations for future work? Yeah, right now I'm working on a few different projects, including one that was actually inspired by a class that I taught while I was um, a postdoc at Wake Forest. Um, The course was called Protest in Piety and World Christianity, Um, Mm -hmm. and right now, I'm kind of continuing in that vein, writing about protest movements in which global South Christian communities have been especially influential. Um, I'm hoping that it'll end up being a helpful resource for seminary students as well as for the church uh, for use in adult Sunday school classes and the like. Dr. Wong, um, that project sounds truly promising and I eagerly anticipate, no, thank you. And I eagerly anticipate exploring more of your work. Um, Once again, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on today's podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes. And thank you everyone so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Cambodian evangelicalism, cosmological hope and diasporic resilience written by Brianna Wong and published by Penn State University Press in 2023. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi, and please stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.